0: If you would now please open in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, and also to Ephesians chapter 4. And that should read Matthew chapter 6. Please stand. This is the word of God from Matthew chapter 6 at verse 12. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgotten, forgiven our debtors. And please turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll begin the reading at verse 30, thinking particularly about the verses that relate to the subject of forgiveness. Ephesians 4. That it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself. Self up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's, Father, read of God's word. Let's pray. O Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. And this evening, as we contemplate and engage the very powerful subject of forgiveness, Lord, we know that we need your help. For some, the contents of this sermon may be something of a stretch. For all of us, it is a means of grace because it leads us to reflect upon the forgiveness of our God. So we thank you for that. We pray to you, even in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This evening, as I just mentioned, I'm going to be addressing the subject of forgiveness. And I'm going to begin by telling a Reformation story related to John Calvin, since after all, it is Reformation Sunday still. One of the very best biographies I've ever written is written by a Dutchman named Herman Zelderhaus on the life and ministry of John Calvin. It's a really wonderfully well-written biography, the the kind of book that even if you're not a book lover, you still have a pretty hard time putting the book down. And uh, the biography of Calvin to me is a really wonderful thing, especially for those of us that don't know it very well. John Calvin married a woman who was a widow who had two children uh, that were not his, two children that she had from a previous marriage before she became a widow. And then she and Calvin had one child child together, and that child died in infancy. Now in Calvin's life and relationship with Geneva, uh, if you know, there's something of a a chapter 1 chapter 2 and a chapter 3. Chapter 1 was really quite bumpy. Calvin and the church at Geneva did not always get along. During the time of his first ministry there at Geneva, uh, there were times where the people of Geneva got so mad at Calvin that they would do mean things at him just to poke at him and have fun with him. One of the things that they did was to name their dogs after him. And what's slightly funny about that is, if I understand correctly, the French word for uh, Calvin would be translated in English, bald. So imagine people from church naming their dogs, not simply after their pastor, but bald. You have a bunch of dogs running around uh, with that name given to them. That was one of the lighter things that they did to Calvin. The harsher one is what I referred to or attaches to what I referred to earlier. And that is when Calvin's one child died that he had in the flesh with his wife of nine years, uh, the church at Geneva actually mocked him for it and referred to it as the curse of God upon him for his bad theology. And then to add injury to insult, they chased him away and he left Geneva. Some years later... They were still without a pastor, and the church had fallen into remarkable spiritual decline. And guess what Calvin did? He came back. Tonight we're going to talk about forgiveness. And I recognize in talking about forgiveness, for some of us, this is a really painful subject. Others, it's not much of a difficult matter at all. But when Calvin came back to Geneva, he said to a friend, Going back to Geneva would be like going to the cross for a second time. And for many of us, that's what forgiveness uh, might actually feel like. And so I want to approach it with that level of gentleness and also that level of sobriety. I only read from one verse in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. But I want to locate the very idea of forgiveness, uh, foremost in what Jesus is actually doing in the Sermon on the Mount. And it relates well to what Paul is doing in Ephesians 4. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been displaying the life of the kingdom of heaven. I know you're studying it in the main Sunday school class, which I've been exiled from for a little while doing the new members class. Uh, But in Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing us the life of heaven itself. And that's helpful to know, because in many ways, the standard of the kingdom of heaven is perfection. And what Jesus is teaching is, this is what perfection looks like. It's not enough to say, I've never committed adultery, but rather to say, here in the kingdom of heaven is the absence even of lust. It's not enough to say that I've never committed murder. Here in the kingdom of heaven is the absence even of anger. And so everything is elevated rightly and properly to the level of, if you will, perfection, because that in many ways is the standard of the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says, therefore, you shall be pretty good as your father in heaven is pretty good. It's not what he says. Therefore, you shall be perfect. As your Father in heaven is perfect. He's stating the bar pretty high. What Paul does in Ephesians is, uh, in many ways, the similar thing, but now on the other side of the cross, where access to the kingdom of heaven has been granted, where the doors of heaven have been opened, where the Son of God has reconciled horrible, wretched sinners, and not only that, he has forgiven them all of their horrible and wretched sins. But he shows us that life in the kingdom looks in many ways like this. Be with me here. This is kind of it in a nutshell. What you have received, you're called to give. What you have received by the grace of the kingdom, you are now called to give to others. And that includes the grace of forgiveness. Arguably, one of the hardest things For us to do. And perhaps knowing that this is so hard for us might help us to understand why it is that Jesus himself even speaks so strongly about the subject. So to take a couple of other verses here uh, in Matthew chapter six, if you look just down at verse 14, Jesus says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. It's the next verse we don't like, right? But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. That's a pretty scary verse. Why? Because forgiveness is not always easy. There are some people that we would easily forgive, and there are some people that we may struggle in this life to ever feel like we've truly forgiven. There are some that would find it easier to be beaten up, have their money taken their time squandered, their possessions ruined, than to be forced to forgive someone for whom they hold a grudge. But it's not just here in Matthew 6.14 that Jesus also speaks to this subject. If you turn over a couple chapters to Matthew 18, the very subject there continues. It's almost as though Jesus has to keep coming back to it because our hearts are so hard. In Matthew 18, even down at uh, verse 21 and following, Peter comes up to Jesus and asks this question about a brother who has sinned against him. And he asks this question. You can almost sense Peter uh, getting a little sarcastic, a little confident in himself, thinking, oh, I've, I've clearly got him here. How many times must I forgive the same person who keeps coming up to me and asking forgiveness for the same thing? Seven times? Is that enough? Where's the limit? Is the sky the limit? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, which you know is a biblical way of saying like infinitely. The forgiveness of God uh, seems to be like a sky without a ceiling. And not only does it Uh, say that. But then Jesus goes on to tell something of a parable, the parable of the unforgiving servant, uh, who Jesus begins by describing, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to such a man. The king goes away, and he has this servant. And this servant uh, has uh, many things for which to be forgiven. However, the servant himself receiving much forgiveness is unwilling to forgive others that owe him a great debt. And the question becomes when the king comes back, what will he do with this servant who was forgiven much, but forgave little? And the ending is rather sobering. So when we talk about forgiveness, we're talking about a subject that is arguably uh, quite difficult and yet remarkably important because in many ways it embodies the life of the kingdom of God. So let me ask this question, how great is our debt to God? If you were to quantify your debt to God, how great would it be? If you're trying to write it out on a check, a penny for every sin, how many commas would there be? Could you write it all on one side of the check? For those of us that are older, how many checks would it take? And if somehow uh, that list of debt could be read out loud, how long would it take to read it? Well, in the teaching here on the kingdom, Jesus has taught us many things. He's taught us to pray for the coming of the kingdom He's taught us to pray that God's name would be hallowed. He's then moved into the very practical, tangible area of daily bread. And one might argue that's very properly here in this place that the subject of forgiveness comes up. For just as much as we need daily bread, so also do we need to exchange daily forgiveness. How many times a day do we need to be forgiven by God? And how many times a day? do we need to be forgiven by one another? And how many times a day, if we need uh, to be forgiven by God and to be forgiven by other people, are there other people that need to be forgiven by us? The answer is rather proportionate. And I want to notice that after teaching us about our need for daily bread, Jesus does not go on to encourage us to pray for more faith or more love, or better worship, or evangelistic opportunities, or justice, etc. But rather, he goes from daily bread to daily forgiveness, almost as though there could be no life in the kingdom apart from both. In many ways, the question of forgiveness uh, draws us to the character and the actions of God. Uh, because on the one hand, God is a God of great justice, a God who is a king, who gives many laws, who has said very clearly and plainly all that he expects of his people. And yet, uh, the story between God and his people is often that, like a broken record. He keeps telling us clearly what to do, and we keep perfecting the art of wrongdoing. He often restores and forgives, and yet, uh, even in that context, there we find ourselves struggling and sinning again. But God is a just God. He's a God who cannot turn a blind eye to iniquity. Uh, he promises in his word a day of visitation, a day in which he will come and satisfy all of our debts before him. His people are often described as a people who remain in a great debt. Even as people of Israel for hundreds of years of their life are summarized with a nickname, slaves, Bond- in bondage, not simply to Egypt, But even to sin. When the Gospels begin, they begin on a note of proclaiming repentance. Why? Because the very first thing that the people of God need to do to prepare for the coming of God and meeting God Himself is repent of their sins. In other words, uh, our sins are like this uh, repetitious note that keeps echoing over and over and over, showing not only how many times we've sinned against God, but how great our debt is before Him raises the very thorny and uncomfortable question, if God is infinitely holy, 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 as the hymn we listened to on the way here, uh, how shall we enter his presence who are sinful, sinful, sinful? Who shall enter the hill of the Lord? Who shall ascend that heavenly hill, Psalm 24, and enter into Zion itself? Uh, Those who have clean hands and a pure heart. But how can this be when on the one hand, uh, there are none who have clean hands and a pure heart and all of us not only need to be forgiven once daily, but how many times again? Daily do we need to be forgiven? Who shall stand, to put it differently, not simply his sin, but who shall stand in his holy judgment when he calls us up the hill to to give an account for all that we have done? One of the ironies is, At the time that Jesus teaches this, uh, the Pharisees were also teaching, and they had a remarkably high standard regarding debt. You could go to prison for debt. You could get beaten publicly for debt. Debt was taken not only very seriously, debt could divide a family, and the Pharisees, in a certain sense, could be described as being very unforgiving regarding debt that man might owe another man. They were all law and no grace. Is that what Jesus is saying here? All law and no grace. No, that's not what he's saying here. Uh, But before we jump to that too fast, it is important to remember that the gospel does not begin in many ways with the value of man, so to speak, but rather with the guilt of man. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God that all stand before God guilty as charged, that all are debtors to God because we've all trans- transgressed the law, and if we were to have to satisfy the wages of, the, of our sin ourselves, how long would it take? Well, you heard the answer this morning. It would take all eternity in hell to satisfy the wages of our sin. We are unable, we are debtors, and therefore we have no hope of the kingdom without the gift of forgiveness. And that's why we can be thankful that God is not only a God of justice, but equally a God of forgiveness. As he says in Jeremiah 31, For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Such is the forgiveness of our God. And this brings us in many ways to the second point, the gift of the kingdom, which is forgiveness. So what did Jesus come to do? Did he come to call in our accounts? Did he come and demand that we should pay the price for the wages of our sin? Well, in many ways, he would have been right to do so. Often, what the prophets in the Old Testament do is they come and they call Israel to account. Kind of like someone who comes representing a loan company and knocks on your door and says, Hey, mister, I'm sorry to let you know, but uh, your, your car payments are way overdue and I've come to take your car. Or your house payments are way overdue. I've come to reclaim your house. Jesus does not come to do that, but in many ways, the very exact opposite. He comes and proclaims a year of jubilee. Even built into the very system of Israel, there was this blessed year in which debts would be forgiven, in which the people of God would be relieved of the burden of debt, and in a certain sense, slavery. This is what it means when we say Jesus will be the one who will come and save his people from their sins because sin and debt are often bound inseparably to one another. He comes to call not the righteous but sinners to repentance, those who realize that they are in horrible debt. And if you've ever been in great debt, you know it's a terrible place to be. It's a horrible feeling. If you've never been in great debt, I would not encourage it. He also came to heal those uh, whose debt, in a certain sense, became visible, but not simply to heal, but to even bear the burden of their debt upon himself. What, What is sin in many ways? Sin is not simply an offense against God. It is also to put ourselves further, further, and further in the wrong kind of debt, a debt that we can never repay. And what greater offense is there to God than that we might blaspheme, curse, and eventually even crucify him on the cross? In a certain sense, uh, the greatness of our debt is seen in the greatness of Christ's agony upon the cross. But not only does he endure the great agony, the great uh, debt, the great wage of our sin, it's there that at the same time that we find the greatest expression of forgiveness ever, For if you found the early verses hard that I read from Matthew, there is one more regarding debt that is perhaps even harder to take in. And that's when Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Now to pause and drink that down for a moment, Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, could almost be stated, Father, forgive their debt. Release them from their bondage. In debt. Forgive them for their many sins against you. Forgive them for their many sins against the Spirit. Forgive them for their many sins against the law. Forgive them for their many sins against me. Do you ever cease to marvel that Jesus could pray that way from the cross? Father, forgive them for their sins, for all that they had done against Him, that they had blasphemed Him, that they had cursed Him, that they had falsely accused them. Him, that they had beaten him and finally crucified him. And yet with his final remaining breaths, one of the last thing that he utters is forgive them. Father, forgive them. That's not simply the life of the Savior. That's the paradigm of the kingdom of heaven, where the forgiveness of God is greater than the sins of man, where the forgiveness of God is greater than than the sins of man. And then he seals it, that there should be such great and extensive forgiveness. Jesus not only dies, but he is raised from the dead by the work of the Spirit, and then he sends that same Spirit to us. For what purpose? Well, it's twofold. On the one hand, that we might know and receive God's forgiveness of our sins, of our debts, in Jesus but that we also might become demonstrators of what we have received in other words in the kingdom of God there is a beautiful exchange on the one hand that begins at the cross where he receives our sins and our debt and we receive his righteousness and therefore forgiveness but it doesn't end there that's not the end of the life of the kingdom in many ways that's actually just the beginning The great exchange. But that great exchange between us and him at the cross in many ways becomes the great exchange that we see as the life of the kingdom is embodied in the people of God. And this will take us to our our third and and brief final point. What does it look like? I'm stretching here. Stretching me at least. Hopefully stretching you a little. Uh, What does it look like to demonstrate the life of the kingdom of God? And And I'll say it again. What is the hardest thing I could ask you to do? Would it be to give away all your money? Would it be to sacrifice your time? Would it even be to lay down your life? Arguably, for many of us, the hardest thing I could ask you to do would be to actually forgive someone who has wronged you. Because some people have been really deeply and extensively wronged. And without being flippant in the use of these words, forgiving sometimes literally hurts like hell. It feels like the weight of the cross. It would almost be easier to die than to forgive someone. And in fact, to make it uh, even more clear, pastoral, and personal, sometimes the hardest person for us to give is not another person. Sometimes the hardest most impossiblest, I know it's bad English, just work with me here, sometimes the hardest, most impossiblest person to forgive is ourselves. Not another person, but ourselves. But again, we ask the question, how much do we owe? Uh, We know that the answer is an infinite debt to God, And yet, now that we stand here, uh, not as debtors, but rather those who simply owe a debt of gratitude, it's very interesting, at least to me, uh, to see the way that the Heidelberg Catechism places its exposition of the Ten Commandments. This is important to me. This is one of the reasons why I like the Heidelberg a lot. You might have put the Ten Commandments in two different places. You might have put the Ten Commandments before the means of grace, like the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechism does. And in that context, what the law is doing is what we call the first use of the law. It's there to crush you, it's there to show you how infinite your great weight and debt of sin is, and how unbearable it is apart from the grace of God that then comes to us in the means of grace because of the gospel. But then there's another way. It's not the first use of the law, it's what we call the third use. And this is where the Heidelberg Catechism puts the Ten Commandments. It's on the other side of the means of grace, on the other side of the gospel, where the Ten Commandments now, and even the Lord's Prayer now, serve as a guide demonstrating what it looks like to live a life as pleasing to God. On the one side of the law, or excuse me, the cross, on the one side of the cross, the law crushes. On the other side of the cross, the law is a law of liberty and life. It shows us what it looks like to embody the life and the way of the kingdom. And this is where the Heidelberg puts the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. It shows us that the motivation to forgive people is not because it's simply what you ought to do, but because of the grace of the gospel, what you've been enabled and made free to do. It's embodying. The grace that we have first received and now exchanging with others as we continue gratefully to give to God uh, out of hearts that have been freely won by his grace. To say it differently, we reflect the forgiveness of the kingdom that we have received wholly and freely by extending such grace to others. In a certain sense, it is simply the nature of the gospel to do so. Let me ask it in question form. What did you do to earn your forgiveness? The answer is nothing. What shall we hold others to in order to forgive them? Now, I want to pause here ever so briefly and and, and raise a snake that I can't put it into perfectly. Uh, I've read quite a lot on this subject. That doesn't mean I know anything about it. Maybe I've just read enough to be dangerously confused. And I know that there are two takes on a very important question, and the question is this. Should we forgive people who have not asked for forgiveness? Should we forgive people who have asked for forgiveness and have then committed the same mistakes again? Is there a point, it begins to sound like Peter's question, is there a point at which we begin to say, you know what, I've I've forgiven this person enough. How, How about no more forgiveness for them? And I recognize, especially in the world and culture that we live in, why that's such a real question. And I don't want to be uh, insensitive with it or just tread harshly over the subject. And and nor do I think that I can easily resolve all the questions that might relate to what I just brought up in the space of this sermon. But But I can say this, whatever it is that Jesus is holding out before us, He is not asking us to do more than he himself has already done for us. And to say it a little bit differently, translate the questions I just asked back to yourself. What would happen if God only forgave us for the sins that we have knowingly and clearly asked for forgiveness for? Do you have any sins that you don't know about? Do you have any sins that you've perhaps even struggled to put to words? Are there sins that you know less clearly about yourself than God knows? And I'm pretty sure that the answer for all of us is yes. And are there sins that will, in a certain sense, be with us until the very end of our days and we may struggle to wholly, truly repent of the way that we ought to repent of them? The answer, again, is likely yes. And yet, will God turn you away from the doors of heaven because you have not fully repented of each and every and all of your sins extensively? I'm pretty sure the answer is no. And so, what's the point? As we have been given, so also should we strive to give. Is there something of a mystery or a margin here? The answer is yes. But can we ever outgive God Himself? Can we ever overabound the grace of God? The answer is no. To say it differently, and perhaps uh, not having all the answers, nonetheless, we must forgive like one who has been forgiven. To the extent that God has forgiven us, we should truly be striving to forgive one another. This is not only the life of the kingdom, it makes for a great church where people quickly exchange forgiveness. This is what Paul is saying to the Ephesians. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted to one another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. It makes for a much easier family life, where words of forgiveness are traded far more than fiery darts, where we don't let the sun go down on our anger, but rather we are quick to, quick to reconcile, slow to speak, and eager to forgive. The flip side, by the way, just to press in just a little bit more, in a certain sense is actually quite dangerous. For there is a measure of hypocrisy, that we would expect God to forgive all of our sins while we, in a certain sense, hold others at a higher standard than God holds us. It's not simply hypocrisy. It borders on idolatry, that God would have a standard of forgiveness for us that is here. Watch my hands that God would have a standard of forgiveness for us that is here, but our standard for other people is way up there. That's not simply hypocr- hypocrisy. It is also potentially idolatry to act as though you cannot forgive their debts when God has clearly, graciously forgiven yours. And this is why I want to say, and i say it again, To forgive other people requires bearing the cross. We can't receive forgiveness apart from the cross, and we can't give forgiveness apart from the cross. To forgive other people in many ways is like walking through the cross, feeling its shame, bearing its burden, even feeling the very sting of death that comes with it. That's why Calvin could say of the church at Geneva, they really hurt me they hurt me bad. And going back to them would be like going to the cross a second time. But he did. Why? Because Jesus went to the cross one time. And that was enough. And if we are called, beloved, to take up our crosses, to deny ourselves, and to follow after Christ, even to the point of forgiving other people, to do so is nothing other than to follow after the way of the Savior, to embody the life of the kingdom and express gratitude for forgiveness, the great gift of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have freely and graciously forgiven us all of our sins and all of our debts. And as we have freely received, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to freely give. But I also recognize that as I speak on this subject for my brothers and sisters, for some of us, this is a very deep and painful subject, for some have been greatly injured, and it does feel like death to imagine forgiving others, especially, O Lord, where there are some who have hurt in ways that just simply seem unforgivable. But I also point out, Lord, and even pray for those that struggle in such a way that there is a certain burden and bondage that comes with unforgiveness. And in many ways, those who need our forgiveness do not feel that burden or bondage the way that we do, but we carry it with us. And it can be uh, something of a great hindrance throughout life. And so I pray, Lord, that you would set us free from those things that would bind us together, that would bind us down in bondage, and that you'd help us to live the life of the kingdom. Help us not simply to glorify and enjoy you, to thank you, for our forgiveness, help us, O oh Lord, to demonstrate the way of the kingdom, even as we forgive others their debts toward us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.